Good evening, everyone. Welcome to The Authentic Woman. I'm your host, Shannon Fisher, and I'm excited to have all of you here tonight. We're doing another live show. It's always fun when we do it live, uh, and we've got a really special show tonight, information that really needs to get out there, and I, I hope we have a lot of people listening. If you're listening later to the podcast, pay attention because this is um, information that a lot of women don't know, and I think uh, most women need to know, and if you're a man out there, you need to know this too for the woman in your life. Um, we're talking about ovarian cancer tonight. Um, 22,000 women each year are diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and only 46% of them will survive five years after their diagnosis. If it's caught early, the survival rate almost doubles, but it's really tough to catch the disease because the early symptoms are common to so many problems, uh, and a lot of them are minor, so people don't take them seriously. My guest tonight is an ovarian cancer survivor, and uh, she's continuing her own treatment. And while she's doing that, she's doing everything she can to help others navigate the long, winding path through the disease. And she started an organization called Cancer Dancer. So she's going to give us some extremely valuable information tonight, both from a clinical perspective and a personal one. And I would like to welcome to the show Esther Winmuller. Welcome, Esther. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am so thrilled at being able to get this information out to more women because, quite frankly, just one woman with the right information might save her own life. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, let's, let's start off talking about your journey, the, the journey of you. Um, when were you diagnosed with ovarian cancer? I was diagnosed in October of 2009 at age 42. Wow. Um, so what symptoms were you having that led you to seek the treatment? Well, I had starting in the spring of that year, I had had abdominal pain and bloating. And mm-hmm. like many women, you know, you think, uh, you know, this is normal. I hadn't been working out at the gym quite as – I was very fit for a while, and I was really healthy. I mean, I've never been sick in my life. Never spent the night, sure. the night in the hospital until any of this happened. Never. Never. I mean, never. Wow. Never even had a flu shot. Never. Hyper healthy. In Amazing. 17 years of work, I missed one day for health reasons. So I just, yeah. you know, so I, and I might have been a little fatigued too because maybe that's why I wasn't working out like I was, but I just thought I was getting a little chubby, you know. I just thought I needed to, to go back to the gym a little more because I was kind of bloated and I had some cramps. And, but I went to the doctor, and my doctors actually did the right things. There wasn't a whole lot else that could have been done, but they did an ultrasound and they mm-hmm. saw things. And they said, you know, those look like ovarian cysts, which are common. Women get them. There's different kinds of them, and they can just be reabsorbed in the body, or they can pop and be reabsorbed in the body, which I understand is a little bit painful, but still not a huge deal. Or if they get too big, even as cysts, they get removed. Mm -hmm. And so they were going to watch them, which is not abnormal. And they did a blood test called, looking for a marker called a CA-125. And in 80% of women with ovarian cancer, your CA-125 level will be elevated. I, unfortunately, was okay. at 20%, so mine was not elevated. So, wow. healthy person, 20 years too young for the disease, CA-125 not elevated. We spent six months watching. Right. So finally, the doctor's like, look, it's big enough. It's got to come out. You know, it's probably not cancer. You really shouldn't worry about that, but we're mm-hmm. going to take it out. And, of course, that's not what they found when they did what they called the peak and shriek. <laughs> And to remove it. Well, they didn't have consent to remove it. So oh, okay. they, what happened was we were going to do the surgery to have the, the, the cysts removed. Mm-hmm. And I was really hoping they were going to be able to do it laparoscopically. So when I woke up, I heard the nurses saying my name and saying laparoscopy. And I was like, great. That means that's great. They were able to take care of it without, you know, leaving a big incision. And then the doctor came in. And I was still looped up on drugs and told me, you know, he was very sorry, but it was malignant. And the reason that it was just a laparoscopy is because they just looked. Once they saw what it was, they took some pictures. Mm -hmm. They brought in a gynecological oncologist, which is super important, and we can talk about that. And then, But they didn't have consent. Because who knows, maybe I would have wanted to go to New York, you know? Right. I might have wanted to do something different at that point. So then they just stitched me, you know, my, my laparoscopy back up and woke me up and told me what happened. Mm-hmm. And then I had some decisions to make. Oh, my stars. And so, so um, what were your options? Well, it's funny. At the time, I did not really consider them all. <laughs> I didn't I have any idea what I was dealing with. I had no idea. But the doctor said... I can do it on Friday. This was a Monday. And I was like, Friday, you can get this out of me on Friday? He's like, yep. I'm like, do it. And I did not 
in retrospect, I wish I had gone for second opinion. I wish I had gone to a major, major medical center. I wish I'd done a lot of other things. I don't know that it would have made a difference. And I have friends who, had they done that, it would have put them in a worse position, actually, because their cancer is growing really, really fast. And so right. waiting two, three weeks might have actually been detrimental to them. But for me, since we've been watching it for six months, another couple weeks probably wasn't going to make a load of difference. So sure. in retrospect, I wish I had done something else. But what I did was I said, you can take it out on Friday. Why don't you just do that? <laughs> well, sure. You find out you have cancer yeah. inside of you. I think it's a, it's a natural reaction to say, get it out of me. Um, and I understand you that <laughs> your, um, your partner's mother had recently passed away from ovarian cancer. So that must have, yeah. have been a great concern to you because you'd already seen someone lose a battle with it. You know, I, she lived in California, so I didn't mm-hmm. get to see it up front. You know, I kind of, you know, I knew she had cancer and she had it when I met him. So it wasn't like a new okay. thing that happened. I just always knew she was struggling with this. And literally, but you know, two weeks before I was diagnosed, he had gone out to California for the funeral. And so, you know, it wasn't, he was really freaked out about the whole thing. When I kept saying, oh, it's just a cyst, you know, we're just going to watch it. I didn't realize how freaked out he was because he watched it with his mom in a way that I really had not. So Mm -hmm. um, it was more for him, you know, a little more that was more appropriate for him than for me. Absolutely, yeah, I can understand that, because he he had the firsthand experience, so he's he's always wondering in the back of his mind, and you're like, "Ah, I've never missed a day of work. (laughs) So Yeah, um, exactly. I'm like, don't be ridiculous. You know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So once they once they took out the um, the tumor, what what happened there? What was the first kind of treat? Did they do treatment after that? What happened? Well, let me back up. There was okay. more than there was multiple tumors, and the doctor did not do what's now what's called a, an optimal debulking. Um, mm-hmm. What you want is a doctor. You, what you want is for a doctor to take out everything that is one centimeter or bigger. And okay. if they do that, you're optimally debulked. If they leave anything mm-hmm. that size or bigger, you are suboptimally debulked. So despite okay. the fact that I did have a very intense conversation with him about wanting him to do that, he did not. Right. And oh, no. he decided that it would be better to leave a tumor on my bladder and my diaphragm. I had them in those places as well. And that the chemo would take care of it. And he was a believer in that. And so when I woke up, he told me what he had done. And, you know, mm-hmm. when you're... With surgeons, once you, once it's lights out, they they do what they want. They're in charge. And I'm not angry yeah. with him. I think he's a good, caring doctor. I like him a lot. I'm always happy to see him. But he had a theory about how things should have gone, and that's what he did. Right. Oh, my star. So so if you had so, the tumors on those, is what stage was it when it was discovered? 3C. 3C. So there are, and, and is, is, four the, is four the most advanced stage? Yes. Okay, wow. So it had, um, wow. That's surprising that, um, that anything would be left there if it had gotten so advanced. Well, so, so you had the two, you had the one left on your bladder and the one on your diaphragm. Um, and right, and the, the doctor's after- reasoning is I, didn't, I thought it would get taken care of in chemo and I didn't want to do anything that would mess up your breathing or your peeing, which is not right. an unreasonable thought process on his behalf. Sure. And so you, you have these things and you're going to go to chemo. And so what was the chemo schedule like? Um, we started chemo four weeks after surgery, and mm-hmm. that was 28, six months' worth of 28-day cycles with me getting chemo on days one and days eight. And, okay. you know, it was, it was rough, but I didn't think it was crazy rough. You know, like you have, when someone says to you, chemo, you think it's the most horrible thing in the world. It's like, I, I describe it as like the rat hat in 1984, you know, where they know mm-hmm. George Orwell's book, they know the thing that scares you the most, and that's what they use, the government uses right. to torture you. Like, I think chemo's like that for people. It's like the worst thing ever. And it wasn't sure. the worst. That, that round was, none of it's been the worst thing ever, but it wasn't that bad. So, you know, I didn't, the chemo that I did, actually, I didn't lose my hair, so I didn't have to look sick. And I, you know, I went to work, and I... You know, you go home, you're tired, you kind of feel crappy, you wish it wasn't happening, you don't eat right. But, you know, it wasn't so awful, especially thinking, because I was, of course, like, well, we're going to knock this right out, and then I'm going to get on with my life. I had every, I had every belief that I was going to whip it and that this was just a thing I had to go through and something that I was going to be able to put behind me. 
Sure. And so at the end of chemo, what kind of testing did they do to, to see if it was gone? What, what did they do to, to monitor it? Well, you don't have to wait till the end. For, for ovarian cancer, generally the test is a CT scan, and you usually have them done every three months. So if okay. I started in November, the first CT was in January, and by January it was clear. So those two spots that he had left did, in fact, go away. Excellent. And so it was and then clear. We scanned again in, yep. And then we scanned again in, uh, for some reason, maybe I want to say it was May. We, mm-hmm. This is 2010, so we scanned again in April or May, and it was also clear. And that's Great. right about, and that's right when I stopped. I think I stopped treatment in April, and we scanned again in May, and I was still clear in May. And I was, you know, like I said, I was like, "See you, doc. Going back to my right. life." You know, I was, I was done. You're, you're not, ready to get back. No, that's to, not how it was. <laughs> yeah, I was. How long after that? Do, how often do they monitor you following the two clear scans? Well, then it's still you're probably going to be on a, you know, each doctor might be different, but you're going to be on a three-month scan cycle for at least a few years, I would think, and then they might go to six months, and then maybe at the five-year mark they would go annual, something like that. Each doctor might be a little different, but for a while you're going to look at you every three months. You you never really know what's going on inside of your body. So at this point you had seen your gynecologist and the gynecologist, gynecological oncologist. And so the person who was monitoring Correct. you was the gynecological oncologist? Correct. Okay. And it is very right. here's point number here's 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 one of the first points I want to make that I want everyone to hear. And that is if in fact you uh have been diagnosed with ovarian cancer or you think you might be or someone in your family is at risk, you mm-hmm. want a gynecological oncologist. Statistically, people that are operated on by and treated by gynecological oncologists instead of regular gynecologists or maybe mm-hmm. just regular oncologists have better outcomes. People that have surgery by gynecological oncologists because they do just these types of surgeries. So that is the, one of the number one takeaways is you don't, you get very particular about your doctor and make sure you get one that's an expert in this. That is good to know. That is, that is great to know. How do, you, how do you get to a gynecological oncologist? Do you go directly to the doctor if you have the symptoms, or do you get referred from uh, your regular gynecologist? How does that process normally work? Well, it depends. If you live in the sticks, there may not be one there. You may have to find where the nearest one is, right? If you're way out in western Virginia, you're going to UVA. So yeah. it depends. Now, in my case, uh, the you know, remember, the doctor that was doing my surgery initially for the cyst was a gynecologist, but he always mm-hmm. has a gynecological oncologist on call during the surgeries. So if he mm-hmm. does what, you know, so when he looks inside and he sees something that he steps right back, he calls the guy, he says, come in, I want you to take a look at this. So he hands the baton over. But it's different in different scenarios. But if you are in that circumstance, you do not want to give consent to a regular doctor to operate on you in that, in that circumstance. You want to make sure, absolutely positively, it's a gynecological oncologist. That is, that is really, that, that's amazing. That the, oh, I mean, it, it, it makes sense that that's, that's what they do. They're not delivering babies. They're not dealing with anything other than cancer, um, you know, and, and that's the kind of and surgery that they And they're up to date on the very latest. I mean, they're still... There's lots of, I don't want to say debate, but there's different, there's different standards of care that are all legitimate in how to go about it. And, mm-hmm. you know, gynecological oncologists are going to be the ones that know, you know, that what they, what they were talking about at the conference this year, you know. Right. And your regular surgeon isn't at that conference. So mm-hmm. very, very, very important. What happened after your clear scan? You just kind of went on with life. I went on with life until a few months later, and I was scheduled to have a scan at the end of August, still 2010, mm-hmm. and I started having stomach pain again. Oh, no. And I thought, this doesn't feel right. And I called my doctor, and I said, I want you to move my scan up as soon as you can do it, which he did. So we did that like the second week of August. It was like a two-week jump. And this is going to get crazy because my story gets really insane. But at that time, there was a little spot on my liver and then apparently a decent-sized pelvic mass that came up on the CT scan. And right at that time, my doctor retired. So that's oh, where wow. I was in August. I knew he was leaving. Wow. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to recur right, right when he did. 
<laughs> and so you're feeling scared, and, and now you don't have the doctor that you've trusted to take you through this. So where did you go? What, what did you do from there? Well, I had, you know, early on when this happened, you know, I'm so fortunate to have so many friends, and people were, like, asking around as to what, who's a good doctor, who's the best doctor in the country, blah, blah, blah. And I had gotten some referrals, including the name of a doctor at UVA. And so at this time, I um, contacted his office and made an appointment to meet with him. And so switched over from a local doctor here to right. a, a doctor up there. Up there, and so you went there armed with your. You had your your scans and your results, um, and you went to him mm-hmm. and said, "What do we do now?" Um, and Pretty so, much. what was the? Yes. Yeah. What was what did what was the recommendation when you went there? Well, this is this is you know here's the next big interesting thing people should know. First of all, whenever you talk to a doctor and they get your history, they always ask you for your family's cancer history, right? That's pretty standard stuff. And had you asked me at the time if I'd had a strong family history of cancer, I would have said no. I know that my grandmother had something in the brain and my uncle had something in the colon, but that's it. That's all I know of. Well, Mm -hmm. that's pretty incomplete history because the majority of my family didn't make it out of the Holocaust. So all of that medical history I would have had, I don't have. Oh, wow. The way that the questions are asked don't necessarily give the answers to the medical professionals. As it turns out, that we believe now my uncle had breast cancer, which is a huge indicator for hereditary cancer. And now I found out that my grandmother, who died before I was born, who I was always told had brain tumors, started somewhere in her abdomen. So I didn't know that at the time. But one very smart fellow up at UVA took a look at me and said, hey, you know, you're really young for this. I was like, yeah, Mm -hmm. I know. And she said, and uh, are you Eastern European Jewish ancestry? I said, yes, I am. And she said, well, that means you are higher risk for having hereditary cancer. We should get you to a genetic counselor and have you tested. And this is nine months after my original diagnosis, and that's the first person that mentioned it to me. Really? Surprising, huh? And I'm not sort of like a person that doesn't ask questions. I'm an intelligent, educated woman. You know, you can imagine how long would it have taken for somebody who, yeah, who may not be very literate or is scared to talk to doctors or whatever. So anyhow, this young, God bless her, fellow hooked me up with a genetic counselor, and that's pretty simple. They ask you a lot of questions about your family, and then they take a vial of blood, and they send it off to the company. And Mm -hmm. sure enough, comes back that I am what's called, I have the BRCA1 mutation. So it's probably the only way that me and Angela Jolie have anything in common, but we do. Mm -hmm. Okay, as the breast cancer gene, is that right? Yes, but you have, depending, you, you have a much elevated chance of getting breast cancer, but you also have quite an elevated chance of getting ovarian, and ovarian much more deadly. You know, you see the problem. You know, she, you know, you go to do the, the mastectomy to take care of that risk, but really, the more deadly of the problems is still there unless you take care of have those kinds of protective surgeries as well. Which, of course, is an individual right. decision based on how old you are and other things. But yeah, it's something that that people have to think about. So, if here's another takeaway: if in your family you have breast cancer ovarian cancer, and now they're finding a link with prostate cancer for the men. If this runs in your family, you might want to just sit down and chat with a genetic counselor. There's lots of things to think about about whether to get tested, but you can't really think about them unless you sit down and have the conversation with the counselor. So you sit down and talk to them because, quite frankly, what it can do is it can save the people that come after you, your kids, your Mm -hmm. nieces, you know, your grandnieces, people, you know, your family that comes after you, or maybe your family that's in your same generation. My first cousin ended up having mastectomies and prophylactic hysterectomy, oophorectomy, because after I was mm-hmm. tested, she got tested. And maybe I saved her life. She's a mother of four. So, anyway, so are these so. Um, estrogen-dependent? Uh, does that have any – I know that some tumors are, you know, fueled by estrogen and, and some are not. Is that why – would you just remove everything to get rid of the estrogen in addition to getting rid of the ovaries so that they can't develop the tumor? No, that works? I'm not sure. I mean, you want to get rid of – they believe now that most ovarian cancer is really fallopian tube cancer. It starts okay. in the fallopian tubes and kind of sheds onto the ovaries where it's a very fertile place where it, where it grows. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know 
some tumors are hormone reactive, and they will test that when they do the pathology on your tumors, and they'll tell you whether yours seems to be or not. But I think that the reason that you get the mastectomies and the reason you get the prophylactic hysterectomy, oophorectomy, salinpectomy, or whatever it is, is that um, you want all of that stuff out. You don't anywhere where there could be a cell. And when you go in there, I mean, they took my appendix. They take everything they can just in case. You know, maybe there's some cells on there. We'll just get it. If you don't have to have it, we're taking it out. So mm-hmm. that's what you would do if uh, if you ended up having preventive surgery. Sure, sure. Wow. So how would someone find a genetic counselor? Is that is that what they look up on the Internet or in the phone book, genetic counselor? Is that I what they're called? Can, I don't know about phone book, but I'm sure that you could look them up. But once again, major medical center, you know, and it, you may not even have to go that. But that's interesting. I'm going to look it up while we're talking. I want to see if I was a if I was a patient, genetic counselor, and I'm just going to put in Virginia because that's where we are. See what comes up. One comes up from VCU, and then there's the Virginia Association of Genetic Counselors. There's one from a hospital down in the beach, HCA Virginia. So your hospitals will come up, and I suspect there's probably a national. I don't suspect, I know that there's going to be a national organization, and I'm sure you can get referred through there as well. And, you know, if you're worried about a particular kind of cancer, let's say something else is running in your family, not ovarian, you know, you can look up under that, you know, those cancer organizations or the American Cancer Society or whatever and sort of work your way to that information through your type of cancer. It's really amazing the technological advances that they've made so that they can test your genes and know your you know, whether you're predisposed toward a, a certain type of cancer, that's that's phenomenal. But like you said, it's shocking that you were that far into your treatment before anyone mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm a little disappointed so, in myself that I hadn't done a little more research myself. But, you know, having said that, you know, we're, we're not perfect, and I'm not a doctor. <laughs> that, and you were going through a time. You were going, you know, I mean, you're, you're, you're going through the chemo, you're going through the emotions, you're – Surprised that you're having your first illness ever. Um, you know, that's you, you research what you're treated and you, you trust that you're getting the best treatment. And so once they once that came back positive, um, what did you do from that point? Well, this is when things get interesting, and that is when the uh, when the fellow and the doctor that I'd gone to see went and said to me, you know, there's a new drug being tested that we think is particularly effective for people with BRCA, BRCA-positive people like you, and this kind of drug is called a PARP inhibitor. And if I was you, I would go find a clinical trial that was testing a PARP inhibitor, which opened up a whole other thing about what to do, about clinical trials and experimental drugs, and now this really new interesting science really about more individualized medicine. So how do, you, going? how do you talk about <laughs> clinical now, this is another thing. Generally, there aren't people that help patients find clinical trials. You've got to do it yourself. You have to be your own advocate. If you're not your own advocate, you're in big trouble. You have to. And if you can't, you have to find someone that will help you. Because yeah. doctors don't get paid to sit around and spend hours going through hundreds of clinical trials to try to find one that is really good for you. Some will. I mean, we'll try. Like, I've had doctors sit down with me for an hour, an hour of unpaid doctor time with my long Mm -hmm. lists of clinical trials and say, what do you think of this one? What do you think of this one? What do you think of that one? But you can't count on them to do that. And so you have to educate yourself and you have to get really smart about how you use your doctor's time. Now, there are um, websites for looking up clinical trials. One is cancer.gov for um, Mm -hmm. cancer clinical trials, and then there's clinicaltrials.org, which is clinical trials for all kinds of health issues. And you can punch in your condition, and you can punch in um, uh, search terms if you want. You can punch in geographical areas if you want. You can do all kinds of different searches, both general and more specific, on those websites and start coming up with lists of clinical trials, but at first it's uh-huh. very daunting because every drug, I mean, you don't know the language. You don't know what those drugs are. Like, there's a drug that is used in breast cancer and also tested in ovarian cancer called bevacizumab, which is also known as Avastin. You may have heard about it. When you first start seeing bevacizumab, what do you, you don't know anything about that. What is that? We just called it Bezelbub. We couldn't even pronounce it. 
We'd be like, here's another trial with the Beezlebub drug. You know, me and my friends would all sit around the table with our computers all out, just going through this list and trying to figure out what this was about. You know, is it worth going to California for? Could I do that? Is that better than the one in New Jersey? You know, it's just, it's, oh, it's an overwhelming amount of thing to do, but you still you have to do it. You have got to sit down, you've got to read, you've got to figure out what the drugs are, and it will make sense if you stick with it. Ultimately, you'll get a handle because a lot of it's the same. You know, somebody's testing the same the same kind of drug five different ways, or some right. crazy stuff where they're using some sort of laser gun, and you're like, I don't need a laser gun. So you know, you do you will get better at it, but it is pretty nuts when you start. I can tell you that. Wow. So, is it difficult to get accepted once you once you find one that uh, that looks like the kind of thing that you're looking for? Is it how do you them and then get involved in the trial? It depends. The, so, the first time around, I had found four trials with PARP inhibitors on the East Coast in which I had interest. One mm-hmm. at the National Institute of Health in Maryland. One in Hershey, Pennsylvania. One in New York. Uh, maybe it was two in New York. Anyway, and so on. There's a there's a phone number when you look up this stuff, and one for the you know for the re- the research nurse or contact person, and you'll generally call them, and they will generally ask you to send them a certain amount of information. So whenever you get sick, cancer or anything else serious. From day one, you need to be on top of your medical records. And this is something that you might be able to ask a friend to help you with. You know, when friends mm-hmm. say, what can I do to help? This is a great right. thing. Is help me with my medical records. Because there's going to be a day where somebody's going to say, send me your medical records. And I had a friend who was, she had them. And she went to Kinko's that day and had them out. I never had to think about it. I just said, hey, so I need you to send this to this person. I need you to send this to that person. And she took care of it. And that was incredibly helpful to me. But I wish that I had bought, like, an awesome scanner day one and, uh-huh. and done some great scanning of things and organizing of things on my computer. Didn't think of it. But anyway, so you send your data to the clinical trial people, and then they'll make an appointment to see you. And then they'll sit down and they will explain to you their clinical trial. They'll make sure you meet all of the inclusion criteria that you aren't kicked out of the exclusion criteria. And some of that might be based on lab work. They may have to pull blood and see if, you know, your numbers are okay. If it's something like that, they usually will wait until they get okay. But, you know, and so if it's a match, they will go over a consent form with you that lists everything that they're going to do exactly what the rules of the clinical trial are, what the parameters are, and all of the bad things that can happen. They list all of the side effects, you know, and, I, and the list is exhaustive, right? It's every horrible thing you ever heard of is always listed. And then you sign the consent form, and you can always opt out at any time. You don't ever have to stay in a clinical trial. But then once you do that, and then you get started. And so I interviewed these all these different doctors and hospitals, and I ended up being fortunate enough to get into the one at the National Institute of Health, which is the one I turned out that I wanted, and they took me immediately, oh, great. actually, which was wonderful. They had a slot. That Sometimes is wonderful. You can wait months and months and months and months for a slot. They had a slot available and took me pretty much on the spot. That is great. And so after great. doing all of this research, uh, you know, you, you saw that nobody uh, was going to help you and that you kind of had to be your own advocate and that it was a lot of work to find this out. And so amid all of this, while you're going through it, you started an organization called Cancer Dancer. I mean, you, you saw it. It's actually was a community. couple. It was a few months later. <laughs> it was a few oh, months okay. later. <laughs> that started in October of 2010. And so, so you, so you get the you get the National Institute of Health, and they were right. giving you the drug that the UVA doctor had recommended that you get. Right. And combined to, with the chemo, so I was doing both. Did you have to live up there? No, but I did have to be up there every third Monday. Okay. And how did were you able to continue working? How did that you know, I know you said your 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 first round of chemo wasn't that terrible and so when you were going through the trial, how did that differ? Um, well I my let's back up to the summer. When I recurred, right, so fast, I went and looked up the statistics that talked about, you know, what you know, where I was then and I found one that said that the average life expectancy of somebody in my shoes was um, nine months. Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, I still I still didn't believe it. I really didn't. But my friends were all like, you got to stop working. You know, you got to stop. 
you know, I, have a, I had a high, high stress job and not one that I could control my schedule very easily. I mean, obviously I could keep every third Monday free if I had to, but, mm-hmm. you know, trial work is not the kind of thing that you can just put into a box. If you're in a trial and it's now going to take three days, well, it's going to take three days. And so my friends were, were pretty insistent that it was an unhealthy thing for me to do. And so at that time I decided that I would stop working. And I, it took me four months really to clean my docket off completely. So my last day of work was in January of 2011. Well, that's good. I mean, I understand that. If your life expectancy is nine months, I can, I can definitely see where uh, <laughs> focusing and on. And you know your what? It wasn't even is- all. It wasn't even all about me because I kind of liked working. You know, I really did. But it was about my clients. It was like the idea that I could go to court and not be at my best. You know, people's right. lives are in my hands. I can't, I can't just show up and kind of get it done. You know, that would. That would have been unacceptable to me. And yeah. from my perspective, you know, I'm a criminal defense attorney. That means I roll around the jail. That means I go to some neighborhoods and shake some people's hands and that are, you know, that may not be, I'm not supposed to be doing that, you know. I'm not supposed to be around little sick kids. And sometimes you can't avoid that when you're working, right? Yeah, and I didn't want, I didn't want to think for one minute that I wasn't doing 100% of what I was capable of for my clients. Wow. That, I, that, that takes a lot. Really, I mean, you had a lot on your mind to make a lot of decisions. Um, and so how long did the trial last, and, and how did it go? What happened? Well, that is a really interesting story and a little longish, so I'll try to make it short. So I'm in the trial. I go in in August of 2010. Mm-hmm. And the way the clinical trials work is there is, um, like I said, there's rules for everything that govern how they go. That's the only way they can come up with data that can be used as research, reliable research data. And one of the rules is is when people have to get thrown out of the study. And usually that means that there has been growth, significant growth. It's generally 20%. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was told in October of 2011 that – Remember that I told you I had that pelvic mass? Well, yeah. they, were me- they measured it every time, right? We have the CT scans. We have them. Mm-hmm. Now we have them every eight weeks. So they measure them. They're like, oh, it's this big. Oh, it looks a little flatter. Oh, this, oh, that. And we watched it, you know, for a year. I keep doing this stuff, and it's there. And finally they said, you know, it's a little bit bigger. And for us to kick you out, it's got to be at 20%. It's at around 18%. So you probably want to leave now anyway. And I was oh, like, wow. well, thanks for everything you've done. You know, it's been yeah. great, and I'll just move on, and I left. And so the first thing I did was make appointments uh, at, uh, with a doctor here in Richmond and then back at UVA, and now that doctor retired, so I have graduated now to another doctor. And uh, each of those doctors ordered different tests. One wanted an MRI and one wanted a PET scan. And so I had one at one and one at the other. And then on my birthday of that year, I get back, the CT scan, and it says no pelvic mass found. And the next day I got back the PET scan that said the same thing. So as it turns out, we think I never did have that pelvic mass, that it was never there, that it was just a screw-up in radiology that they all were looking at a piece of bowel and mistaking it for tumor. And so for a year, radiology up at NIH was just wrong. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, this is pretty. This is a pretty amazing thing. Can you imagine how happy I was to find out I didn't have that? So we yes. call up NIH and we said, "Hey, they're like, send us the reports." So we send them the reports, and they convene some special meeting and they get me back into the clinical trial. And so in November, I start back on that drug, and I was back at NIH, continuing in the clinical trial in November of 2011, having found out that I never had that. I, they won't say I never had it because maybe I had one and it went away, but that seems pretty crazy to me. So it sounds like that was just a goof from the beginning. So I went back into the trial. Unbelievable. That's crazy. And so, so you, you get back yeah, in the trial. Yeah, it was crazy. Yep. And then I was in the trial until they really did kick me out in May of last year, May 2013. Okay. So you were and in I had this, this trial for a really long time after that then. Two and a half years total which is a hugely and so long time. so what were the results? Well, you know, they started following these tiny nodules that they could see on the CT scans because they had to follow something, right? You're in this trial. They have to be able to follow something to see how you're doing. Well, 20% of teeny tiny is really small. So one of those teeny tiny ones 
got a little bigger, and then according mm-hmm. to those rules of the clinical trial, I had to leave, and that's what happened last May. And so where do you go from there? Well, next you doc- go to your doctors, and you ask them what they think, and then you run around the country and you talk to other doctors and you ask them what they think. And you get online and you look at lots and lots and lots and lots of clinical trials and try to make some sense of what might be your next best option. Mm-hmm. And this is where things get kind of hazy because there isn't, like, the list of things you do. There's a list of things you can do, and lots of doctors mm-hmm. have different ideas about how to do them and in what order and which ones they like the best. And some of the, you know, and no one's really focusing on cure. I mean, that was done when you get, when you recur. Now people are talking really about, you know, quality of life and extension of life. But, you know, how much quality versus how much extension, how much, you know, pain are you willing to go through in treatment for, and for how much benefit and for how long. So you start having right. some really quite difficult conversations with doctors at that point. Wow. And so that's just got to be completely emotionally exhausting. It can be. Wow, you have to figure it out. And doctors that. will tell you different things, too. Some doctors will say, there are doctors that will say, you know, these are all these drugs we can try, and the way I like to do them is one at a time. So if something works, we know what it is. And there's other doctors mm-hmm. that say, you know, here's all the drugs we can do, but I absolutely think you should do two at a time because we know that this drug here, I know you've already had it a few times, but we know that this drug here is the most effective for you, so we should just keep giving it to you with something else until it stops working. Two completely different ideas, two very learned doctors. And there you are. <laughs> and so, and you're, you're left to make the decision for yourself which way you want to go. Yes, although That's- some people aren't. Some people just have a doctor, and their doctor tells them what to do, and they do it. So you don't have to be as involved as I've been. I don't. I wouldn't know how to do it another way. And I, for me, this is definitely the best way to, to go forward. Plus, quite frankly, it is my decision. I've had times where my friends were so concerned about me, and they were like, "We really think you ought to do this or that or the other." And I would look at them and say, "Do you really want the responsibility if it turns out poorly?" Mm-hmm. And they're like, "Oops, no, I don't." So I don't really want anyone to tell me what to do. It's my decision. So if it goes wrong, nobody else can sit around and say, oh, my God, I helped her make that horrible decision. That's my fault. You know, it's all it's me. It's all me. And I accept that mantle. I take that. Yeah, that's that's a lot. And and you um, you're you're helping other people empower themselves to make their own decisions, too, with Cancer Dancer by Mind giving you. them the information, all of the information about the, the trials that are going on and the symptoms and, and all the things that you navigated for yourself, you are now helping other people do. So what, what motivated you to, to start that? What made you decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this and help other people along my way? Honestly, a lot of rum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my boyfriend and I were on vacation. In the Dominican Republic, and I was, and this was in uh, October of 2010, so it was right when I'd started the clinical trial, and I was so angry that I knew so little, that this was, you know, that this, that being BRCA positive was, in fact, I was at a high risk because of my ethnic background, and no one said anything to me, and that, you know, I didn't, I had these, these issues, you know, the pain, the, the bloating and pain and some fatigue, and yet nobody really took the ovarian cancer seriously. And I had good doctors. It wasn't like I just got unlucky and had a bad doctor. I had good doctors. And I still didn't know jack about it, and I continued to not know jack about it, even as I was going through it until much, much later. And perhaps right now I still don't know jack about it relatively to what I could know. And I was angry, and I was like, we got to do something about that. And so fueled by a lot of rum on a Dominican Republic beach, we came up with this idea that we were going to put together a nonprofit called Cancer Dancer where we were going to get people to dance as sort of an expression of life and as a joyful thing and as, as to create a memory, and we were going to put them up on the Internet. And when people went to check out the dances, we would expose them to this information. And that was the original idea behind Cancer Dancer. And it came actually into being in December, so two months later we launched. Okay, and so how did you launch it? Um, we put together a website and a Facebook mm-hmm. page and started doing every, you know, and of course, you know, I'm a lawyer, so we set up a nonprofit and we did all the things that you do to be official and tax deductible and all those things. And then we just turned to to, to the world and was like, you know, hey, put up some videos. And some people did, but most people didn't. <laughs> <laughs> But it got it got something started that is 
such a, a great amount of information. So all of all of the information that you that you have that you're sharing now to other ovarian cancer patients or people who are just trying to learn about it, was all of that there at the beginning, or did you kind of add to it? Did it grow over time? A lot of it came pretty soon in the beginning. Once we started, I was like, I want a page on this, and I want a page on that, and I just, you know, we would, and it's not just me, you know. Of course, I, it started with my disease, but this has been a group effort with a lot of people that have put it in. But we just started adding data to that page, and then really we are very active on Facebook. Our, the Facebook page has stuff on it every day. So it's a that's a really good resource, and it's really vibrant, and people comment, and it's a good way to to have it in front of you so that you don't forget these things that you need to know. And uh, so we also joined the Ovarian Cancer National Alliance, of which we are a partner member, which is a national umbrella group. And we you know, you can get a lot of information and support from them as well. And so you're, um, I mean, you're, you're going through all of this on your own, and you're now helping other people. And so I imagine with all of the, the work that you're doing and the contacts that you're making that it's both invigorating and exhausting. How do you, what motivates you to keep going? <laughs> I don't know how to stop. Uh, you know what I mean? Like yeah. once you do something and you see something else that needs doing, I don't know how you go, eh, I'm not doing that. And right. there are moments. Like there's a woman who was recently diagnosed, and we've just started making these great comfort kits, which are bags that have blankets and um, tea bags and chocolate and lotion and uh, just wonderful little things in it and a note from us saying you're not alone because Lord knows mm -hmm. I I didn't, you know, when this happens to you, you, you see those numbers about how many people are going to die in five years, and right. that's pretty isolating information. And so, you know, she, I met this woman, and she's like, I just got one of your bags, one of the first ones that got given away, and she was, like, in tears, you know, and now she's around. She, we have her, you know. She's not alone. I don't know how you stop once you start doing something like that. How do you walk away from that? I don't know how, and I don't, I don't plan to. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, and I mean, it's speaking of which, <laughs> and if anybody wants to donate so we can make more bags, feel free to go to our yes. website and hit the donate button. We would love to have your money. <laughs> Absolutely, and their website is the letter O cancerdancer.org. Um, and there's, there's, it's really, um, yeah, and you can, I, I link to the Cancer Dancer. Facebook page on the podcast broadcast. So if you if you look at the text that's highlighted over the name Cancer Dancer and you click on it, it will link you through to their Facebook page, um, or you can go directly to their um, to their website. If you go to Facebook, um, if you go to Facebook, you can put facebook.com backslash O Cancer Dancer, and it'll take you straight to our page as well. Awesome, awesome. Um, now, so back back to the um, the symptoms and and the the disease. The, the early symptoms yeah. are, I mean, they're, you know, bloating, feeling like you're putting on a little bit of weight, poor digestion. Um, I would imagine a lot of doctors tend to kind of brush that off as, as common, you know, you know, saying, well, you, you must have irritable bowel syndrome. Um, how do people know when to take them seriously? Okay. The, the biggest symptoms are bloating, pelvic or abdominal pain, Difficulty eating or feeling full too quick. You haven't eaten that much, but you feel really full. And having a change in your urinary symptoms, urgency or frequency. Those are the big ones. Um, there are more, and we'll go over those in just a second. But if you have them for um, more than two weeks, uh -huh. you probably should check in with your doctor, or t more than 12 times in a month. Or if you know there's something wrong. I mean, no one knows your body but you. And it is so easy to go, well, whatever it is, it's probably not a big deal, and to just blow it off, right? Everyone's depending on you. You're a mommy, whatever. You're running. You're working. You'll get to it. It's not. Don't. If those things, if you get symptoms like that and they last for more than two weeks, you need to go to a doctor and you need to go to a good one, one that will do a very thorough examination of you and mm -hmm. one that will take you seriously when you say, I'm worried about ovarian cancer, and because people do get diagnosed all the time with irritable bowel or other things that, that turn out to be untrue. And so you have yeah. to make sure that when you talk to your doctor, you have that, that, that simpatico with your doctor, that you guys are on the same page, you're worried about the same thing, and that, they, that your doctor's taking it just as seriously as you are. And so if, if the doctor isn't taking it seriously, switch doctors. Yeah. Find another one. Go find another one. <laughs> Go find another one. Uh, and that's right. true, I think, all the time. 
if you ever have a doctor that is just not taking your concerns seriously, then you're just not with the right doctor. I mean, that doesn't mean he's a bad right. doctor. He's just not the right doctor for you. And I want to go over right. some of the other symptoms as well while we're talking about it. So we're talking fatigue, indigestion, back pain, pain with intercourse, constipation or menstrual irregularities, all those. And none of these symptoms are things that are so unusual that you'd be like, oh, my God, something's terribly wrong. But if you get a few of them and they last, then something is terribly wrong and you have to go find out what it is. And remember, a pap smear does not test for ovarian cancer. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people know that. I mean, I I think a lot of people think if they go to the gynecologist every year and and they get their pap smear done that they've been tested for, you know, all of the gynecological problems they could have. Um, And so the the only way to test for it is is biopsy, right? They can't tell by any – I mean, once you've been diagnosed with it, they can tell by imaging. But the actual diagnosis, do they have to surgically go in like they did laparoscopically with you to get it? Pretty much. I mean, sometimes it's kind of, I think it's more obvious when they have, when you have an ultrasound and if your CA125 is elevated. So if you're symptomatic, you have an elevated CA125 and they see something on scan, they may be, they may be sitting you down and instead of like they said to me, which is, eh, you shouldn't have, you don't have to worry about it. They might be sitting down saying, I see something that makes me really, really concerned and I want to go in there and get it right away. Then, you know, so it depends on, on the combination of symptoms and your history and your age and things like that. But, yeah, there, nobody can say for sure that it's cancer till it's been biopsied. That's so scary. Yeah, I mean, it's just something that could be going on inside of your body and you just you can't, you can't tell without going in surgically. So, so if someone has been diagnosed and they've gone to a doctor and the doctor has taken them seriously and they go through testing and unfortunately get the diagnosis of ovarian cancer, what do they do? I mean, I know every case is different, but there are there have to be some things that you know some things that they should immediately immediately do. What would you recommend? Well, there's so many. First of all, don't do it alone. Mm-hmm. There's a world of help out there for you. I hope. I hope you have your own people, and if you don't, I hope you can find some people. But you know, first you're going to freak out, and that's normal. But then you have to stop freaking out. Panic is the enemy. It doesn't help you. It won't help you figure out the answers of what you need to do. It won't improve the quality of your life. So you have to you have to go through your freak out. You're entitled, and then you got to set it down. And if you need to do that by finding a mental health counselor, then that seems appropriate. Go get one. If you need to go do a lot of yoga, whatever it is you need to do to center yourself, because you've got work to do. You have work to do. And uh, so bring your people around you. I mean, I think that, you know, I wouldn't wish cancer on anyone, but I will tell you, beautiful things come out of it. I mean, friends and people I barely knew just stepped up in the most beautiful and meaningful and thoughtful and helpful ways. And when those people step up, embrace it, you know? You are now surrounded by a community of people that want to help you and let them. Like I said, my friend that helped me with the medical records, I can't tell you how much I – it's not something I enjoy doing, messing with that in the mail. And the fact that she took care of it, that was great. I had a friend – this isn't a friend that I, you know, was super good friends with. I've probably been to her house twice. And this isn't a wealthy friend who showed up with a $300 gift card to Elwood Thompson's for me for healthy groceries. I mean, out of the blue. And people – People showed up with baskets of pajamas. People were like, what do you need? I'm like, I don't know. I guess I'm going to be, I guess I need pajamas. And and people showed up with baskets of pajamas and tea and people from offices that I, you know, had dealt with but didn't really, not my good friends. And so when the world starts to embrace you, take advantage of all of that help. And do the things to support yourself, you know, emotionally. And, you know, if someone offers you a beach house, go to the beach. You know what I mean? Just take the good things that are going to come with this crappy, crappy diagnosis so that you can focus on all of those hard things that I talked about, which have to do with making decisions, you know, and getting through your treatment, you know, looking at your mortality and figuring out what's important in your life, you know, you will be able to do those things. But it's going to be so much easier if you if you let it you you know lean on the people around you who want you to who really do want mm-hmm. you to. And I, and I think that a lot of people have a problem accepting help. I mean, even when they're in a circumstance like that, um, that's a lesson that a lot of people need to take. And and I hope that they are really hearing what you're saying. Take the help. Let people help you. Let people give. Because
because they're giving because they want to give. And if you're in a situation where receiving is, is, is possible and necessary, you're very right. People need to, to absolutely take the help. And so, you know, I, I mean, having the cancer has clearly impacted your personal life in a, in a positive way through your friendships, um, it sounds like. Sure. Um, but they and it's allowed really me to help other people. And it'll, you know, it gives me an awareness that allows me to help other people. I've had friends diagnosed, not with this, but with other things since my diagnosis. And, you know, I'm now in a position to be a lot more helpful than I ever was before. Before, somebody would get cancer, and I wouldn't even know to ask what type. I would just go, oh, that's mm-hmm. terrible. And it is terrible. But, of course, now, you know, my, my sensitivity level is a lot higher. You go, what kind of cancer is that? What's that about? And just to be a more engaged friend. Right. Absolutely. You can be more empathetic, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and nobody can really, no one can understand what you're going through because they haven't been through it and they're not you. Um, but they can, they can see you and it, it sounds like you're, you're really open about everything that's going on. And, and I think that's helping a lot of people. Your openness and willingness to completely tell your story, um, you know, all, all of the details of it, good and bad and uh, you know, things that you think went right and things that you think went wrong. More people need to do that with with illnesses, especially illnesses that are hard to diagnose and treat. That's why Cancer Dancer just there is a place for it. So um, I guess we should thank God for rum because. <laughs> <you> <laughs> well, know, I do I all mean, the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You you took the energy that that you had you know while you were fighting and you. You started something, something really great. So what kinds of things are you doing with Cancer Dancer to, to help raise awareness of ovarian cancer? Well, like I said, we have an incredibly active Facebook page. We have over 7,500 likes. And these mm-hmm. are, I think, active likes. These are people that chat on our site and post things and comment. And so it is a place where people go to get information and inspiration um, we give out, we have just started with the survivor kits, which is so when a woman in the central Virginia area is diagnosed, she will get handed a kit and it includes a card that gets her in contact with us, which we think is really, really invaluable. Um, we, so all of the doctors, um, all of the gynecological oncologists have, have that information and give their patients the card when they're diagnosed? It's a whole bag with all full of goodies, earrings that we made, all kinds of things, and yes. Uh, they're supposed to. <laughs> Hopefully they're doing it. But as soon as some, a woman is diagnosed, they should be handed that bag, and then we sh- they should have a way to get in touch with somebody so that they do not have to be alone. They can meet somebody with ovarian cancer that is still here and doing okay, which I think is huge. I just All I wanted to do when I got diagnosed was to meet people that had lived for a long time. I met, you know, I met somebody over 20 years, and I, was, it just, I just wanted to touch her, you know. So uh, we also do a program called Survivors Teaching Students where um, we go to uh, the – and this actually existed in Richmond before Cancer Dancer, but we're required to do it through the Ovarian Cancer National Alliance, and we're happy to, where we go to the med schools and the nursing schools, and we tell our stories, like I've been doing tonight, to med students and nursing students so that they can be more aware of those things about getting to a gynecological oncologist, about – knowing your symptoms and um, and just to put a face on the disease so that when they're in their practices, if it starts to pop up somewhere in their medical heads, they'll go, that reminds me of that lady's story. And they've shown statistically also that that can improve um, improved uh, outcomes when medical right. professionals have higher heightened awareness too. But I did go to the FDA last week to try to testify on behalf of that PARP drug that I had. It was mm-hmm. up for... Um, an advisory com, what's called an advisory committee opinion, and the advisory committee tells the FDA what they think they should do, and the FDA almost always follows it. So I went to the hearing on Wednesday and spoke in favor of that drug because I need it, right? I can't get it. I'm not on study anymore. And uh, unfortunately, they did not recommend its approval, so I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, but I did try. So was it because of side effects or, or lack of evidence? In some ways, both. It's kind of complicated, but they... The company put it forward as a maintenance drug, which means a drug for people that don't currently have cancer that are trying not to get it again, instead Mm -hmm. of putting it forward as a drug that's a recurrent drug. And so that means that you're comparing the drug and its side effects against the population of people that are not taking any drug and having no side effects. And so is getting the side effects worth the benefit? And so it wasn't as clear as it could have been. 
So there's, I think there was probably more going on there than even I understood. You know, I'm in, I was, I've never done anything like that before. But they want different, they want different kind of data is really what they want. They want the drug to be used in a different way and different data before they're going to approve it because some people do have side effects from it, and they also don't want to approve it while there's still lots of studies going on for fear that people will stop being in the studies and then they won't get the ultimate data that they're looking for. So I think there was a few reasons why they voted against it, but it was still personally devastating. <laughs> I imagine. Yeah. So, so how do we improve the statistics? I mean, have there been any new recent breakthroughs in diagnosis and treatment that are, um, you know, that you found out through, through all of your research? Well, seven years ago, there were no PARP drugs, PARP inhibitor drugs. I mean, all these things. Are, there's so much new stuff in cancer. The trick is, is who gets it? And right. here's what I mean by that. And that is, let's say there's a drug that you give to everybody that has lung cancer. And 95% of the people go on to die, and 5% of the people are healed completely. Would you call that a good drug? 5% of the people would call it the most amazing drug that ever was. Mm-hmm. But will those numbers stand up, you know, to getting approval of the FDA? You know, probably not. So the trick is not, I mean, they need to come up with lots of new treatments, but it's not the number of treatments. It's figuring out, which treatments go with which people. There are probably uh-huh. a number of treatments that will help people, but we don't know which ones to put them in. And this is where, the when I started mentioned individualized medicine earlier, that's what we're talking about, is finding out what, kind of, what your cancer is all about, just yours, and trying to figure out what drugs would plug that hole. And my cancer, my ovarian cancer, might look a whole lot like that guy's kidney cancer and not anything like that woman's ovarian cancer. So treating ovarian all the same, ridiculous. Right. And so now they have to take all of the cancer drugs and start testing them all over again on different people, and it's a very arduous process. So what can we do? First of all, you fund research. The government you know, has been pulling money back on medical research right and left, and it's terrible. So if, if you're in contact with your Congress people, let them know that you don't appreciate that, that you'd like a world that has less cancer in it, and we can all agree on that one. And mm-hmm. then secondly is fill clinical trials. There should never be open slots. They should be full because the more people that do them and the faster they get done, the more we get this information and the more drugs we're going to see and the more, you know, we've never had a new drug without clinical trials. We've never had a, we've never had a benefit without one. So we have got to just fill them up and keep filling them up. Sure. I mean, yeah. So when they're when they are coming up with new medicines to test and new um, methods of of doing so, how how does a clinical trial get approved to be a clinical trial? I mean, is there is there a process to even get to the point where they can do a trial? Absolutely. I mean, first, there, mm-hmm. there's lots of things about this that I don't know. And so maybe you can find another guest on another day that can talk a little bit more about this. But first, they have trials that are um, before people trials. And those are going to be, you know, petri dish trials and then animal trials. And once they show a certain amount of promise in those trials, then they're going to try to put together uh, trials with people. And trials come in four phases. And the earliest ones are phase ones, and the latest ones are phase fours. And a phase one trial, once they have they have taken the data and they have proposed it, I don't even know who they proposed it to, but shown that at least it was safe in the animals and why it should be safe for people. The first stage of the trials, phase ones, are only to determine safety and dosing. So they may start out with just giving people a little tiny bit and then over time increasing the dose. Or these are trials where you may have um, a placebo involved, not that you're not getting treatment in cancer. You have to get treatment. They can't placebo you and not treat you. It's unethical. But it may be drug A, B, and placebo versus drugs A, B, and C and to see what the side effect differential is. So that's what – and then they go through – I can go through all the other phases, but there are boards that check behind this. There are hospital, and there's whole boards of things that oversee how all these clinical trials are done, and that's why they have those rules, because once the rules are are drawn up, they have to follow them, and each one has its own protocol. That's great. So people can feel safe that if they are entering into a clinical trial, that it's been through a process of approval and that it's that it's it's not just some quack who said let's try this that you know that it's definitely something that's going to be safe. I think that's important for people to know that there's you know there, there's a certain amount of risk that's already been taken to get to the point where they're they're giving it to people. 
So you talk I about, that you talk about wellness on your website and kind of the, the mind-body connection um, and, you know, that there are things other than, other than medicines and, and treatment that can really increase your chances of, of having successful treatment. Um, what, what are those things? Well, I don't know if I would say increase your chances of having a successful treatment, but they can make your life better. And that's okay. really what this is all about anyway, right? You're going through treatment to have a longer, happier life, right? So if you can do other things to have at least a happier life and hopefully longer. But, um, you know, any anything that makes you feel better that isn't directly unhealthy, <laughs> I'm in favor of. But, like, for example, I mentioned, you know, I mentioned going to see a mental health professional. It seems really reasonable to me if someone's told you you might die pretty soon that that might be the kind of thing that you'd want to go talk to a professional about and dump on them in a way that you may not be able to dump on your friends and your family. Like it's right. hard. You you may be feeling some horrible things. Some really you may be you know imagining your funeral. Terrible stuff. It's going to happen, and you don't want to turn to someone you love and go. Let me tell you, I was thinking about my funeral. You you can't dump on your friends and your family like that. Or maybe you can, but I'm not. And so like that's what shrinks are for you go there and you double over them and they are like great you know so do that or um you know things like acupuncture or yoga mm-hmm. or you know any of the complementary kinds of medicines anything that you can feel like you're doing for your own health some people go on some pretty strict diets and um mm-hmm. that's you know no sugar and, no, you know, only organic, absolutely everything. And it makes them feel like they're in control and that they're feeding their body the healthiest thing they can. Great. Some people are able to do a lot of exercise. Wherever your place is that takes you to some place where you can feel like you are helping yourself, that you are not just at the mercy of this thing that's happened to you, you know, in any way, then, you know, follow that path. And, like, if you look at the wellness pages on our website, you can see some of the things we've written about, but it's not exhaustive. If it's walking up a mountain, go walk up a mountain. And you can. I know people with ovarian cancer that have walked up mountains. So, um, you know, you're not just because this happened to you doesn't mean you're stuck on the sofa for the rest of your life. Uh, there are things you can do for yourself, and there are things you can do for other people. I mean, there's never a day where if you don't do something that helps out another person that you don't feel better for it. That's the fastest way to feel better is a hot shower and helping someone. Very, very true. <laughs> you're, you're helping so many people you know, by, by raising awareness, and you're, you're helping people who haven't been diagnosed who just need to know about it, and you're helping people who have been diagnosed. So what, what do you think is the, the number one thing people need to know about ovarian cancer? Symptoms, bloating, pain, you know, all the things we've talked about. Go memorize them. Go to the Cancer Dancer website. Look them up. Bookmark the page. Hey, how about this? Bookmark the page and send it out to all the women you love right now and say, I just want to make sure you know this. You know, do it every day on every year on Mother's Day. On Mother's Day, send it to the women that you care about. That is the number one thing. After that, you know. After that, there's lots of things to think about, but you can't even get there if you don't know you have the disease and you're the best person, you know, to be aware of you. And so that would be number one, just know those symptoms and pass them around to all the women that you care about. Yeah, yeah, that's the most important thing. So, so what does your journey look like from here? You're, you know, you're, you're almost five years in um, from your initial diagnosis, and so uh, what are the next steps for you? Well, I started a new clinical trial, um, mm-hmm. gosh, how many weeks has it been? Six weeks ago now. I have my third chemo slash biological agent. It's a combination trial this past Thursday. And uh, it's been rough, actually. Although this weekend's not been as bad as the other two. But it's not been an easy chemo. I've been feeling pretty lousy. But uh, I am hopeful. It's very, there's some exciting reasons why these drugs might be good for me. And I'll have my first scan on July 16th, and I will have a better sense of whether it's working or not. And if it's working, I will keep doing it. And if it's not working, then I will go find something else. Wow. This is, it's such a journey. And it's, it's you know, it's so arduous to have to, to keep seeking out different methods of treatment. So um, anyone going through this, I just have such admiration for you because it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to handle. And I imagine that it's, it's kind of changed your entire outlook on life, yeah? Yeah, I mean, it, it's like a curtain comes down. It's the life before this happened and then the life after this happened, and they're very different lives. And there's things about them both of, you know, of meaning and substance, but 
very, very different. And they say that, you know, once you are in the situation like I am where you have recurrent ovarian cancer, you just view it as a chronic disease like diabetes or AIDS. It's something Mm -hmm. you're always going to be dealing with. It's not a you're going to either get over it or you don't. It's a you have this and you're just going to deal with it for as long as, as we can. And thankfully those times are getting just a little bit. They're getting a little longer. People are living a little bit longer. So they're... You know, all these new things, all these new clinical trials, I think are starting to push the needle just a little bit to give us a little more time. That's amazing. I, 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 I wish you the absolute best with this new trial. I hope that it is, uh, I hope your scan in July gives you the best results yet. That well, would be, thank you. That I would do, be too. Wonderful. And Positive I want to thank energy. you for picking this topic and for having me on and for put, passing this information around. I hope that somewhere out there today you and I, you know, helped somebody a lot. Most definitely, most definitely, and uh, you know, any anything that uh, anything that we can do, like you said, to make someone's life better, uh, is an important thing, and it, it makes you feel good to know that you're that you're helping other people. There are so so many links on your website uh, to go, so many resources on the Cancer Dancer website. So all of the listeners uh, go to ocancerdancer.org, uh, donate, like Esther said. Send it to every woman that you know so that they know the symptoms, um, which is the, the absolute most important thing that anybody can have. Shannon Fisher, the author's on the air, Global Radio Network, and our sponsor is PML Media at pmlmedia.com. And I, I would just really like to thank Esther for coming on tonight, and um, I wish you the absolute best. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, if I can ever help out again, you just let me know. And wonderful. Will do. Good night.